This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Sunday, July the 5th will be a unique day in the long history of Inglis when two major sales come together as traditional physical auctions at the world-class Riverside Complex at Warwick Farm. At 10am sharp, Easter Round 2 will get underway with 94 outstanding lots by world-class stallions like Brazen Bow, Deepfield, Dundeal, Exceed and Excel, Not a Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Frankel, I Am Invincible, Lonro, Schnitzel, Piero, and So You Think, with first season sires like American Pharaoh and Capitalist represented. Inglis have decided to bring the famous scone sale to Riverside this year with a catalogue of 156 lots. This auction will begin immediately after Easter Round 2 concludes. All horses will be at Riverside from Thursday, July 2nd for your inspection. Who would have thought the famous Easter sale would have a winter session? Who would have dreamed the popular scone sale would come to town? Inglis have taken extraordinary steps to accommodate vendors and buyers in extraordinary times. It's really happening. Easter Round 2 and the scone sale together under the same roof on Sunday, July 5th. It was a benchmark 70 at Warwick Farm on Wednesday, May 13. Josh Parr had won the race in a tight finish on Aussie for trainer Bjorn Baker. A few strides past the post, the popular jockey experienced a sensation in his left arm, the like of which he'd never experienced before. It felt as though electric shocks were running from his neck to his fingertips and the strength in the arm had diminished. Fortunately, he was able to bring the tractable three-year-old gelding to a halt and get him safely back to the winner's stall. The club's doctor was unable to identify the cause of this sudden condition and urged Josh to get specialist treatment as quickly as possible. One month later, and Josh now knows he has a condition called brachial neuritis, which equates to nerve damage to the brachial plexus, a large bundle of nerves that feeds the shoulders, arms and hands. He also knows that this condition can be caused by one of three things, reaction to a flu shot, a virus or an injury. Specialists don't know which of the three is the culprit in Josh Parr's case. Physiotherapy commenced last week and he's desperately hoping he may be only a few weeks away from a return to the saddle. A very frustrated Josh Parr had been going along happily this season with 46 New South Wales wins, including 24 in town and a Group 1 Randwick Guineas on Shadow Hero. Josh Parr is online to join us on the podcast. Josh, it must be more frustrating than painful. Hello, John. Yeah, that's that's correct. I, I'm a very frustrating situation for myself and my family. Obviously, I've been out of the saddle and out of work for, for some time now. Mm. And the the time period of, of this particular injury uh, or or illness is, is quite unknown. So we will be determined by the physio on, and how my body reacts to the physiotherapy on to when I can return. But uh, a, a very extremely frustrating and um, 
nerve-wracking time. It must have been frightening and puzzling in that few strides past the winning post at Warwick Farm. You'd have no idea what had happened to you. No, I can I can honestly say it was frightening. I'm not a I'm not ashamed to say that the the symptoms I was experiencing were were quite severe and the that that electric feeling into my hand and like down my arm and into my hand um and the pain that followed in my shoulder was was very serious and and I knew I couldn't take it lightly um and and I was I was urged urged by by the medical team to to seek um to to find out what the what the situation was immediately right so the following day uh, back at home on the Central Coast, you had uh, MIR scans, you had an EMG muscle graph and a nerve conductive study. It was pretty extensive. Yeah, that's correct. And that was just to find the, the problem. It, um, this, this took a, some time too and it was trying to identify the exact problem seemed, actually proved difficult. Um, I, I was quite relieved when we did find a diagnosis for, mm. for what was going on albeit a very serious one and um, and one that can take a long time to actually recover from but mm. I was there was a sense of relief when I was actually told what the what the what the condition was mm. um, just now it's uh, I've got my I've got my head focused now on, on getting right and, and doing the right things to to get myself back into a, a fit and healthy shape is it true that for the first week you couldn't pick up your mobile phone? That's correct, John. I was so weak. I'd lost all all use of my left arm. So um, that, that's correct. I, I couldn't pick up something as simple as, as my phone. I, I went to open the kitchen drawer mm. there one day with my with my left arm and I couldn't get the drawer open. Mm. It, um, it was just a, an incredible um, an incredible experience and, and not a good one, I must say. Mm. Uh, but to, to, to have lost, all use of my left arm um, for that period of time was it was just frightening. Mm. And now, Josh, is the strength slowly coming back? Yeah, I'm at about fifty percent now, John. Mm. Um, my physiotherapist is—he was quite upbeat uh, just the past week when I saw him. Um, I'm, yeah, so fifty percent in relation to to my right arm. So I still got a long way to go, but uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping my body reacts in a positive way very quickly. You're telling me that some jockeys accept their fate when injured, but you can't cope with the boredom. You get very unsettled. Oh, I do, yeah. I, um, I have a tendency to just always be on the move and, and I just always have to be doing something, uh, whether that's working or, or doing things around my, around my property. Or I just I can't seem to, to rest. But mm. um, and unfortunately, when you're injured, you can't do the same things that you would often do. Mm. So yeah, I'm driving myself mad and, <laughs> and I think my family even more so. I was just going to bring Amanda into the equation. Fortunately, she is very busy at the moment with your four-year-old daughter, Bonnie, and your brand new baby girl who must be, what, three months? Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Sadie's three months old now and mm. um, uh, a silver lining. I've been able to spend some very precious time with with the girls, and uh, I have enjoyed that. But I'm I'm very lucky to have Amanda because she uh, uh, she she's a very good mother, and she she doesn't miss a beat, and, and those kids are so well looked after in mm-hmm. her care. 
and it gets her away from you for a while. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, gives, it gives her an excuse to, um, yeah, to, to lock me away in the bedroom and, and tend to the girls. <laughs> Josh, too much time off isn't the ideal situation for a 56-kilo jockey. Now, are you doing anything to burn off a few kilojoules? No, that's right, John. It's not It's not good. It, um, obviously, your fitness levels drop immediately when you stop race riding. And, and someone who, as you mentioned, rides that little bit heavier, who's constantly keeping their fluid levels down, not just not just food level, but fluid levels down too. Well, they that just that all just your body stores all that while you're off, and you're not you're not having a sweat, you're not doing your normal fitness regime. So mm. yeah, I, I do get heavy when I'm off, and I do lose fitness like like anyone does. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll be I'll have the hard work ahead of me, but I'm I'm actually looking forward to it because I I do like being fit. It's well documented that you get a big kick out of winning any race, even a Wyong maiden. But your emotions were there for all to see when you won the Randwick Guineas earlier this year on Shadow Hero. You're always animated when you ride a Group 1 winner, but I don't think I've seen you more animated than you were this time. What was the reason for that? I haven't been that excited on a race course before, John. Mm. I, I've, I've thought about it often, uh, as to as to why I was so excited for for that particular race uh, compared to to other group ones, but I was just thrilled. I, I haven't I, I, the adrenaline was just adrenaline was amazing. Mark Munim and I had put together a, a very specific plan before that race, and the plan was very different to our, what I expect the opposition. Uh, would have had for us. Oh. I think they would have had us in a different position. And um, with how the track played, it was essential that I used the inside barrier to take up a more forward position and find the fence. Um, we we were fortunate enough to uh, to only be a few lengths off the off the speed once we once we were turning into the home straight. Mm. And when it when it when we pulled it off and he stuck his mm. head through there, Shadow Hero and and won, I was. Yeah, it was terrific. It really was. So it was principally because the plan that you and Mark had devised came off, came off big time. That's correct. And, you know, we, we make plans. A jockey a jockey and a trainer, well, they should be anyway. They should be making a plan every time they mm. go out for a race, regardless of what the, the event may be. Mm. Um, in this in this case, it's obviously the at the biggest stage, the Group 1 level, so – Everyone's plan is usually uh, spot on, uh, and this just it just come off perfectly. It was just the a, a well executed plan. Uh, the preparation had been faultless up to that point, and and it all just built up to to that that moment of winning the round with guineas, and mm. and we, uh, yeah, it was a real thrill. You won two Group Ones on Shadow Hero, and he was a very good staying prospect had he remained in Australia. But alas, the Hong Kong dollars were too tempting and he's gone. That Hong Kong market is going to be a real thorn in the side for Australian trainers who've got a nice young horse in their stables. Yeah, it breaks my heart that he's that he's gone to Hong Kong. I he his potential was was incredible here in Australia, say from sixteen hundred metres to two thousand metres. They're the 
they're the they're the big races here as a as a wait for age horse. Mm. We we could have seen a, an exceptionally good wait for age horse in, here in Australia. So I'm 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 really disappointed that he he's not staying here in Australia for me to ride. Um, I think Hong Kong racing will suit him. He'll he'll get dry tracks. He'll get fast tracks. He'll get races run at strong speed. And their main races are, are similar, so that from that 1600 to 2000 meter mark, mm. um, they have a horse. Or David David Hayes has a horse there now that um, oh, he he could reach any sort of level. Even more disappointing early in the season was the breakdown of Nikita Jane, who'd run third in a flight stake. She'd won a light fingers. She won a Group One surround stakes. She ran third in a Randwick Guineas. Terrific filly with a ferocious will to win. I think you were pretty upset. Yes, definitely. She um, that that all come to a halt very quickly with her preparation. We I'd galloped her, I'd galloped her six days out from her first up run after mm. being a Group One winner in the Surround Stakes, and and she went a miss. And she was working really well at the time. Everything looked like a we're in we're in place for a, a strong spring um, and yeah it all come to a halt really quickly and she she was a filly that reached great heights uh, with very little racing and a filly who was big and strong but still had so much maturing still to come mm-hmm. and that's that's what really excited me about her she could run speeds john at the track that were just remarkable mm-hmm. I, I i know on a couple of occasions i I couldn't believe what I had felt at in the gallop, and I don't think Mark Newnham could believe what he had seen. It was just she was just a very specially talented filly mm. who, unfortunately, we won't see on the racetrack again. Mm. Is she in foal, Josh? I'm not sure if she's in positive yet, but she, I know she's um, she has has been sent to the breeding barn. I, I know mm. Coolmore uh, showed their interest in her, and uh, I'm pretty sure she resides at Coolmore Stud now. So. Mm. We, we wait with great interest to, to see what she produces. Mm, I'll say. I should have checked before we uh, recorded our podcast, but you could safely assume she is in foal. Yes. Now, you were going to be a jockey from the outset. Your dad, Stephen, was a well-regarded and a very busy jockey in his day, and you went to the races with him many, many times as a kid. In fact, you followed him everywhere, Josh. You were like a foal at foot. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct, John. I uh, everybody everybody in the industry knew who I was uh, as a very young boy. I I was um, that kid turning up to the races that should have been at school. So mm. um, I probably made a pest of myself to a lot of people, but uh, I enjoyed every moment of it. I'm also told that you were fascinated with live racing on television. You couldn't walk past a TV screen if the races were on. That's that's correct, and I, my my mum and dad, uh, <laughs> they can they can safely say that it used to used to drive them mad, um, just how how much racing I like to watch or listen to. I, uh, my dad used to tape, my on on the old v, VHS like a videotape. He used to tape the, mm. the big races for me, and I'd I'd watch it over and over and over again. They'd go past the winning post, and rewind it back to the start and watch it again, and. Uh, interestingly enough, John, you're, uh, it was you calling a lot of those races. So 
um, isn't it funny? Here we are today, and and I'm a I'm a guest on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, Josh, your very first TV racing hero was Damien Oliver, and you tell a lovely story about your impressions of Damien's Melbourne Cup win on Doremus in 1995. What was that story? Yes, I, I actually thought I was Damien Oliver for a <laughs> for a large <laughs> period of my childhood, John. I uh, when when Damien Oliver won on Doremus, as you mentioned, I he had he had long hair at the time and it was hanging out the back, back of his skull cap. And mm. um, for the next, oh, I think it was about the next three years, uh, I copied that hairstyle and I had these long long flowing locks that uh, used to hang out the back of my cap and. Mm. I actually wore a, a baseball cap signed by by Damien Oliver um, for a period of time there. So, yeah, isn't it um, isn't it funny? Like, yeah, that's that's a good one. And what a marvel he is, Josh. He's forty seven or forty eight years of age now. Never been in better form. Never been more dedicated. That's correct. I I haven't seen a jockey like him, John. I, he's just he's. His will to win still, it's it's just remarkable. He just continuously rides good races. He's, his record is unbelievable yeah. at, at group one level since he was a since he was a teenager and he's still he's still winning them now. Uh, he's just a he's a beauty of our sport. We'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll come back with Josh Parr in one moment. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Your first apprenticeship was to Kylie Gavinlock at Gosford. Kylie's a terrific horse person and she's still going strong. Won a race at Canterbury only a month or so back. Yeah, I had a good grounding uh, at Gosford, John. I was um, I was very fortunate to start my my life as a jockey uh, at Gosford with Kylie Gavinlock and, and her team. Um, we were good, fr- good friends. Uh, I learnt a lot and they were a really willing bunch of people to, to help me also. I, I was fortunate as well with with my dad uh, riding track work there. So I just had so much support and so much guidance uh, whilst I was learning the learning the sport at Gosford. Mm. Does dad come to the races now to watch you in action or is he an avid sky viewer? No, he likes getting to the races. That I, I think dad actually likes enjoys the races more now that he watches myself and, and my brother-in-law, Tim, Mm. Um, than when he was riding himself, so he he's a he's a regular on a Saturday now, which is which is handy because he comes along for the the car trip with us, and mm. um, he's a good one to have around because he keeps he keeps me grounded. I mm. <laughs> I, was, I could 
I can tend to get a little ahead of myself sometimes, John, but um, (laughs) (laughs) he he certainly keeps that leash pretty tight. Well, Kylie Gavinlock decided to expand her pre-training business and that meant her racehorse numbers dwindled. So it was amicably agreed that you should transfer to Gay Waterhouse and you were there for 20 months, Josh. What did you take out of 20 months with Gay? I... I learned how to work hard and it was a totally different situation for me. I, a, a boy, a very laid back boy mm. from the central coast um, arrives at Randwick at Tullock Lodge where there's, there was 150 horses in work at the time for, for gay stable. And it was work like from the, from the moment you woke up to the moment you went to sleep, it was just flat out. And it taught me a really good work ethic um, I have great memories of, of being a, an apprentice at Tullock Lodge and mm. um, very, very fond of the history of, of Tullock Lodge itself and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. You spent the latter part of your apprenticeship with Peter Snowden while he was still at Warwick Farm and that was a tremendous learning curve. He was a great supporter too, wasn't he? Yeah, certainly was and, and Peter took me on at a time when I was I was reaching the back end of my apprenticeship, which meant my my claim had reduced and and the opportunities had dried up somewhat. Uh, so he took me on with possibly not a lot of get not a lot to gain himself, and uh, I'm, I'll always I'll always be grateful for that. And we we clicked really well straight away, and and our partnership was was great. Uh, I read so many winners for for Peter while he's with with Crown Lodge, and I continue to do so now that he transferred his son, Paul. Mm. And, I, again, just another great experience in my, my young career and, and set me up. And, and, and writing for such a big establishment, mm. I, I, had to, I had to be mature beyond my years. Um, admittedly, I might not have been quite mature enough to, to, to really take advantage of the, the situation, but... Mm. Um, Oh, I'm certainly grateful for, for what I achieved with Crown Lodge. You had a lot of time for a horse called Falaise, trained by Peter, and uh, he gave you a lovely little Group 3 victory one day in the Newcastle Newmarket, which at that stage of your career would have been as good as a Group 1, and later you rode him in a Doncaster. Yeah, a special horse to me, because uh, as you mentioned, my first black-type winner at uh, Newcastle, so uh, he, he holds a, a very special place in my heart and and to have my first Doncaster ride aboard him well that was just that was a, that was an incredible experience I, I I wasn't ready for the the speed that that race was going to be run at and the pressure the pressure that uh, comes with with riding in a group one race it, it was just a totally different level but um, again what a what a great opportunity for a, for a young jockey to have mm. to be able to, to experience group one racing at such a young age. Now, Peter Snowden rewarded your work ethic in the autumn of 2010 when he put you on a cult called Skilled in some very important races. You won a listed on him at Rose Hill. You ran second beaten an eyelash in the Sires Produce Stakes by Yosai and then came that thrilling initial Group 1 win in the Champagne Stakes. You gave him the run of the race before getting home narrowly. 
Yeah, thank you, John. It, um, it it worked out really well. That was one of that was another one of those races where a plan come off to perfection, and and we were able to reap the rewards. Um, what a what a great experience to 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 win at Group One level for the first time. That's a day I'll I'll never forget. It's it's a feeling I'll never forget, and I've and I've always wished it since then. I. I, w- I wish everybody could ex- could have experienced how I felt that day. It was just mm. sheer bliss. Ty Angland rode the runner-up that day in the Champagne Stakes, and I think Ty actually bunged in a protest, so you had to go through a few tense moments before victory <laughs> was yours. Yeah, that's right. I think <laughs> I think Ty was just testing my nerve. I, I don't think he <laughs> truly believed <laughs> truly believed that there was a genuine protest there, but. Um, uh, we can we can laugh about it now. You know your role model at this time was the great Darren Beedman, who was in the best form of his career during your Warwick Farm days. I presume you got to ride work a fair bit with him. Yeah, the, at, at, um, Darren, as you said, at that time was just at the very peak of his game, and um, here I was at multiple metropolitan tracks, sitting you know alongside him in the jockey's room and. And watching every movie he made, it was um, myself, Tim Clark, and Ty England. I think the three of us uh, gained gained a lot of uh, knowledge, um, and but just watching him, how he rode, and, and how he how to dealt with he, with himself as a business, mm. and how, how lucky we were. Your second Group One winner was a cult called Hampton Court for Gay Waterhouse. In the spring champion stakes, he came from well back and won easily. He won like a six to four chance, really, didn't he? He did. He still holds the record there for the two thousand meters at Randwick. It's uh, mm. just an incredible performance that day from him. the The speed was strong. I, I remember, I, I remember vividly the the speed. It was more like a fourteen, sixteen hundred meter speed mm. um, than a two thousand meter speed. And here I was on a Gay Waterhouse trained horse uh, next to last, so so that's a, a good indication of the speed that they went in that mm. race. And my God, he was strong at the back end. Oh, he stormed home, didn't he? He certainly did. Now, Josh, he went to Melbourne and failed in the Victoria Derby. You didn't go down with him. Uh, Karen McAvoy rode him. He was spelled after that, and you know he never won again. You got to ride him several times the following autumn, but he went off the boil. He did. He didn't return the same sort of horse. He, that big, powerful, big, powerful horse with, uh, you know, the, that will to win that he showed that day in the spring champion and also the week before when Joe Marrera rode him, uh, he didn't return with that same zest for racing. Mm-hmm. And what, 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 a, what a disappointment that was because he, he could very well have been um, uh, an extremely good horse. You had one ride for one win on a Victorian filly called Shoals and that <laughs> one win happened to be in a Group 1, one of your yeah. favourite races, the Surround Stakes for trainer Anthony Friedman. I rode Shoals on the Tuesday morning before the Surround Stakes and it was a bottomless track that morning and I couldn't believe how well she worked on, on such heavy ground mm. and the forecast was meant to be wet for the rest of the week. So I got really excited uh, mm. leading into that race. Um, however, the forecast was wrong and the track dried out and it wasn't a wet, it wasn't 
anywhere near as wet as were forecast, but it didn't matter. She she parked herself outside the leader mm. and showed a clean pair of heels when she when I let her down and away she went. She, absolute beauty, isn't she, Charles? Mm. Oh, beautiful mare. And, um, you were most enamoured of her ability in the post-race interview, I remember. Yeah, that's correct. And I, I was obviously very excited. As you, as you mentioned earlier, I, I do show a lot of emotion after after victory and um it it is very easy when you when you uh when you're celebrating a, a group one winner that's for sure <laughs> mm. you've only had a handful of rides or you'd only had a few rides for richard litt uh, when that expatriate new zealand trainer asked you to ride a dundeal cult he was pretty excited about at the end of 2018 now you rode castel vecchio in his first barrier trial in which he ran second, did he give you any special feel that day or was he just another two-year-old? He gave me a really nice feel that day. However, he was very naughty. He, um, he, did, he tried his level best to, to, to get rid of me on, his way to, on the way to the start. Mm. He did absolutely everything he could do wrong um, throughout the trial, but there, there was something there. I, I, mm. I, I did like the feel he gave me and... It was just going to be a matter of whether he could mature into a into a racehorse or not to mm. to see his, the best of his ability. Well, he had a little blow after that first trial, and then in his second trial, he was ridden by Tom Marquand, and he finished unplaced, about seven lengths behind the winner. Uh, but Richard decided to go straight into a maiden two-year-old at Canterbury at a Friday night meeting. He started at odds of sixty-one dollars. You rode him. And you were last of 11 runners coming around the home turn. Now, you take it from there. If anybody hasn't seen the replay of this race, I, I suggest you go back and have a look because it's very rare you see a horse having their first start in a race at Canterbury win in the fashion that he did. And it was evident that day that he was well above average Um simply because of the, the the fashion that he had won in and he ran down and he was able to beat quite a quite a classy field too so yeah if you haven't if you haven't seen that that replay i, I suggest you go and have a look <laughs> it was an astonishing win you you were last into the straight you decided to go up the middle between horses the openings came and he, he picked them up in four strides yeah remarkable and john he didn't actually know what he was doing it was just all sheer ability. He, he was still so raw at that point of his career. Um, uh, it, was a, it was really exciting. Not half as exciting as the $2 million English millennium at odds of $21 <laughs> about three weeks later, 14 runners, he's last early, he's 12th on the turn, off the track, still a long way from the lead, but you were going to win at the 200 metres. That's right, and it's similar fashion again, just in no man's land, out the back of the field, hard ridden from the 600 to try and get him to attach himself to the back of the field. Um, at dawn passage and a, a session, I think it was. Um, Accession, yeah. Him, mm. Absolutely cantering. And I got, I gave him some clear air, asked, asked him to let down and whammo, away he went. Yeah. Just put him away so quickly. Mm. And he, he – and, Interestingly enough, those two races, so the first start at Canterbury and then again in the 
English Millennium, 100 metres or 200 metres past the post, he was still just motoring. Mm. He's, he's, his stride just kept lengthening and lengthening and lengthening. And uh, that's my manager actually pointed that out to me, just how impressive mm. uh, that was about him. And, and sure enough, as soon as he... As soon as he was going to get out to a to a trip that suited the, um, he was going to come into his own. He ran third in the Skyline Stakes after that. Richard made up his mind that he wasn't a slipper horse, and uh, he decided to press on then to the Sire's Produce, in which you dead heated for third, and then came his first Group One, the Champagne Stakes, a little bit longer up to the mile, and you rode him closer than he had been previously. Yeah, that's right, John. And in the in the size projects, he he wasn't fit. He um he had got a he'd got away on us, and and he just wasn't fit enough to to win. And at the two hundred the two fifty meter mark, he'd put in a put in an attempt to to run the run the leaders down, and and then blew out of condition. Mm. So I was very confident with that run under his belt that the sixteen hundred meters would uh, would be just perfect for him. Mm. And I was actually quite excited uh, in the first part of the size produce that he was able to just show me that he was going to be able to take up a little bit more of a position. Mm-hmm. And that's why in the champagne stakes, so I, I gave him that little squeeze out of the barrier mm. and was able to, to obtain that midfield position to, to give him less work to, to do at the back end of the race. Mm. Josh, I know it's a tied old phrase, but he was never going to get beaten, was he, in the champagne stakes? No, not at any point. He he would have to have fallen over, John. Yeah. He he was just he he canted the the whole race. He he just got a a really nice pull up into it from the from the six hundred meter point and and when we when we got to the top of the hill, he was he had built up a whole heap of momentum. He was like a slingshot, ready to ready yeah. to let go. Mm. Well, by the time Castelvecchio was back in the spring of two thousand and nineteen, Shadow Hero was on the scene. And your loyalties had to be with Mark Newnham, from whom you were getting a lot of riding. In fact, you only had one more race ride on Castelvecchio, and that was an unplaced run in the Golden Rose. Yeah, it's a crying shame that it that it had to go that way that uh, that we that we split with with Castelvecchio. But my my loyalty loyalties um, were were to the Mark Newnham stable and, and still are, mm. and. It, um, I had to I had to look long term as well. Like Mark and I are a very good combination, and 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 I, I ride majority of his horses. So um, uh, that was it was an easy decision in that regard. And and the and the and the beauty of it also was uh, I wasn't getting off Castelvecchio to ride a slouch either. I was I was <laughs> I was getting off him to ride a a very good one in Shadow Hero. You were devastated in the spring of 2017 when a very good horse you were riding went amiss and was actually sent to stud. Now, you'd won the Rosebud and the Run to the Rose on Minari before finishing a good third to stablemate trapeze artist in the Golden Rose. Now, he developed trouble in the near-four suspensory ligament, Josh, shortly after that, and the decision was made to send him to Newgate Farm Stud. How good yeah. was Minari? Sorry to interrupt there, John, but yeah, he was uh, as talented as any horse I've ridden before. He 
he won the Rosebud and the Run to the Rose, like you, like you mentioned, in incredible fashion. Um, unfortunately, we got to the, the Golden Rose and the, he just didn't run the, the seven furlongs. Um, and, and and was and was and was beaten, but um, an incredibly talented horse. Mm. Uh, just a just a, to look at, just a real athlete, real specimen, you know. And um, disappointed, I'm I'm disappointed I didn't win a Group One on him. He certainly had the ability to to win a Group One, but unfortunately, it's not um, it's not on his resume. So it's a that was a that was a hard one to cop actually. He got 60 mares in his first season, but only 20 of them conceived. His suspensory problem had recovered pretty well and Connections decided to give him one more try. And Gerald Ryan got him right up to a couple of exhibition gallops, one of them at Warwick Farm. But the suspensory flared again and he's gone back to stud. It was a pity, Josh, a real pity. Yeah, exactly right, John. You summed that up. Sum that sum that up to a T, and um, just a, a real shame that he's that he didn't get his group one that he that he should have. You reached another very important milestone a few months ago when you rode five winners on a Wyong program, a rare achievement. Now, Josh, I hope you do it again one day. But if you don't, it's great dinner party material. It certainly is. I I could uh, I could just picture myself in years to come uh, reminiscing of that about that one particular time. <laughs> it um, yeah, a, a really good achievement. I, I'm something I'm proud of. Obviously, my first time doing that, and and was quite surprised of the number of jockeys who who had said to me they haven't done that, and and jockeys that I I thought definitely would have. Uh, so many have ridden four on a card, but not so many of the five. So uh, a great achievement that I'm proud of. And, and as you said, let's, let's hope it can happen again. You got a big buzz out of winning last year's Jim Crack Stakes on that beautiful chestnut filly, Every Rose. She's had four starts since. She has run a couple of seconds, uh, disappointed in the silver slipper earlier this year and had to be turned out. And you tell me there's a good reason for all of this. Yeah, that's correct, and I and I was excited about winning the Jim Crack. It's uh, a time honoured race that uh, we all get so excited for, um, leading into the, the the new season. And and I was able to win that for Derby Syndications, which was good because they're a great supporter of mine. The style she won that race was was great. She jumped, put herself right on the speed. Actually, she led the race and just ran away from her opposition and mm. and quite talented opposition in saying that and. Uh, she looked very exciting, and when she when she returned, when she returned for her next preparation, that Magic Moon's uh, tilt, yeah, she just continued to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And Mount mm. Unum says to me, she was um, you you couldn't keep the feet up to her. It was just remarkable the amount of growing that she was doing mm. for a two year old filly whilst doing work, and and it actually, I, I believe it had an effect on. On her first two runs back, with it with her fitness levels, uh, when she when she ran King's Legacy to to a length uh, nowhere near her her peak fitness, uh, just shows how much ability she she has, and and then it all went pear shaped in the the Magic Millions uh, in a very high pressure race, and, and she mm. actually finished alongside Farnan mm. uh, without 
at having any luck at all. So she she's a, a very high class filly who I'm excited to see when she when she returns to the racetrack, uh, especially with the form that she has around her. You've already mentioned, Josh, that Tim Clark is married to your elder sister, Jade. You both live on the Central Coast. You obviously get together for family occasions. Does racing dominate the conversation or do you tend not to talk shop? <laughs> at, the, at the family gatherings, we, uh, we, 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 uh, no, we don't talk too much about racing, but we spend so much time together uh, anyway on to and from races and um, we're at, at each other's place and that all the time and, um, and racing is definitely the, the number one topic. Um, it's it's a great it's a great advantage to for me to have to have Tim as a brother-in-law, but a, a really good mate because mm. he's someone I can I can turn to uh, when I need some advice or when I need someone to talk to. He, he's just a he's a really good bloke, and it's it's certainly a I, I think I'm the beneficiary of the of the friendship between us. It was the famed American writer Mark Twain who said that all emotion is involuntary when it's genuine. And I think of that quote whenever I see you interviewed on Sky Racing after riding a winner at Wyong or a Group 1 at Randwick. You even sent your grandmother a cheerio call one day. I think, <laughs> I think you called her Grumbles. <laughs> That's correct. So uh, her, she developed that uh, nickname from her great-grandchildren and uh, – and it's well and truly stuck. And th- thank you for for observing that with my my emotion pre- uh, post race. I it's something that um, yeah, I, I just can't seem to hide. I, I do enjoy winning, and and I'm not taking away from anyone else's uh, post race um, demeanour. Like we all enjoy winning. That's just nature of the sport. But I I'm an emotional sort of guy, and I, I don't I don't hide emotion all that well. So. If I'm happy, you know I'm happy, and if I'm if I'm not too impressed, well, you'll certainly know that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you just continue to wear your heart on your sleeve. It's part of your persona, and it's part of the uh, part of the personality that has endeared you to racing people here in Sydney. You've ridden well over nine hundred winners. You've ridden well over eighty stakes winners, and I think it's now seven Group Ones, isn't it? It is. Yep. Well, that CV looks pretty impressive, but you can't wait to make it look better. You're chomping at the bit. I certainly am, John. It's, uh, I'll continue to try and build on that on that CV, and and and, and let's hope I let's hope I can crack the double digits to the the Group One races. Josh, thanks for your time on the podcast. Lovely to talk. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.